welcome back to Haz Chats, where we're chatting about hazards, technology, and all the human stuff in between. When a hazard happens to you, it's an emergency. And we typically react to unexpected emergencies with one of the three types of evolutionary responses. We freeze, we flee, or we fight. It's a spectrum of action from doing nothing to doing a lot. And at the polar extremes, you are more likely to experience and cause harm. But it's not just in our hazard response that we can see these extreme reactions. We can also see them in the measures that people take to try to achieve a sense of justice. So that's what we're looking at today. From the bystander effect to frontier justice and vigilantes, we often see these polar extremes of response manifest in hazard response, both offline and online. So when a hazard happens to us, how can we be sure to avoid going too far toward the extremes? Let's chat about it. And trigger warning, we're going to be talking about this and referring to hazards where these ranges are common, and that includes sexual assault and hate crime incidents. If hearing about these examples of these hazards may be harmful to your healing or mental health, you may want to skip to the next podcast. And should you ever find yourself in one of these situations and not sure what to do, Hazadap offers easy-to-read instruction on what to do before, during, and after you encounter this hazard. You can view this information online at www.app.hazadap.com or download our app from wherever you get your apps. Let's talk about it. We're going to be examining this spectrum of human behavior when we encounter a hazard, all the way from freezing, where we do nothing, uh, to fleeing or flight, when we just run from the danger, um, all the way to fighting, when we challenge uh, the danger coming at us, you know, either to spare our lives or someone else's lives. Yeah, it's really, um, it's kind of interesting because when I think about the fight or flight response, generally I'm thinking about like, off I'm in the woods and like I see a bear. Right. Or if I'm like, you know, I think about like real world situations where I'd have to literally be running or fighting. So it's, um, it's interesting that that idea really translates to online spaces when we think about people's behavior. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to to uh, kind of see that in a in a virtual space. Totally, totally. Yeah, the the bear in the woods. Um, anytime we're being attacked, that's typically what comes to people's minds uh, when we think about fight, flight, or freeze. Um, and you know, you you think of bear, and I mean, as a as a woman, I I, I tend to think sexual assault. Because, right. you know, that's a very common thing. And then I don't, bear attacks are not common. I should put an asterisk there, but it is terrifying. <laughs> um, and, you know, starting at freezing, this is where you are a deer in the headlights. You are too shocked to move or to take action. And when we freeze, we are the, at the most risk of incurring harm. So this is where we become immobile. Um, and it's also an, an inhibition behavior. So you will hear this when when you talk with victims or survivors um, of sexual assault and they say, I just I froze when right. they try to explain what happened. Um, you know, whether this was sexual assault, a shooting, a military ambush or any really stressful experience um, that they may go through. Yeah. Um, if we think about um, freeze in sort of an online setting, 
How do you think we see that? Totally. We can absolutely see this online. Maybe you've been on uh, your social medias and you've seen someone make a bullying comment and you decide it's not worth my time or someone shared a post that's hateful and you scrolled on past. Um, And that's something actually that's a little bit tied more to flight. Um, But freezing is that moment where you see it and you're like, what do I do do with this? Um, And maybe even just, uh, you know, kind of ignore it. That might be part of that freezing. And freezing, you know, really happens as a psychological uh, effect. It's an evolutionary response where your body just goes into freeze because of the shock. Um, and we've developed this like almost as like a safety mechanism, mechanism like antelope, uh, where your thought process just stop due to a specific defense and circuitry pathway. And your brain does this to make room in your head uh, to take in new information about the situation and make quick decisions. But sometimes we just get stuck there processing and freezing is nothing to be ashamed of. You know, if it happens to you, it's a perfectly normal response and anyone and everyone, even trained professionals can experience this kind of inaction. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's like precognitive. It's not something that, um, you know, people are doing because they're like weak or, Mm -hmm. or, um, like it's, it's not like a decision people make. It's a, it's a, instinct it's a response and yeah um totally so you know that freezing from shock is one reason why we freeze uh but a freeze also happens due to the bystander effect have you ever heard of this i've heard a little bit a little bit about the bystander effect so it's a it's a phenomenon and it happens often in a couple different situations and it's fair warning it's kind of horrific um when it does so psychology today describes the bystander effect uh, occurring when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening in an emergency situation whether that's against a bully uh, during an assault or another crime the greater the number of the bystanders the less likely it is for any of one of them to provide help to the person in distress people are more likely to take action in a crisis when there are few or no other witnesses present. So one of the historical examples that's quite famous uh, was a Genovese case where a woman was brutally murdered uh, in the street and her neighbor saw. She screamed and they didn't do anything. Uh, Nobody helped. And that was quite some time ago. And that's when we really started bringing the bystander effect kind of to light as to public knowledge but even we see this even happen still today. Uh, recently, in last year, uh, a woman was raped on public on a public transit train in Philadelphia, uh, and riders that were on the train with them just held up their cell phones and pointed them in the direction of the sexual assault rather than calling nine one one. Yeah, I mean that's just um, it's crazy, and I I kind of understand the feeling of. If something's happening that's maybe shocking or uh, not right and you're in a group and you can kind of get this feeling of like who goes first or like what do we do and it definitely you know if you are one person and you're by yourself you don't have to think about any kind of group dynamic it's you know there's a situation and there's me and so that that's when you know actions will take place but when there's a group um, I think there's just a lot more elements at play and maybe people get uh, confused by others who aren't doing anything. And yeah, it's a very 
it's a pretty disturbing uh, effect because it's, you know, it's like a whole group of people and no one is doing anything. Yeah, it's really strange. Totally. And my goal in talking about this right now would be to uh, hopefully place a little bit of an allergy uh, for everybody to be a little bit allergic to the bystander effect. Right. So that when you see that, feel that, hear that, um, you recognize that in yourself. And so let's let's talk about what this could actually feel like if you are in that group setting. Um, And you just brought up that the idea of I thought someone else was going to help. That's really very common. And that's the pluralistic ignorance uh, where we're actually more likely to help and take action if we're alone. Uh, than compared to a group setting, because we look at everybody else uh, and seeing what they're doing, assuming that someone else is going to help. Right, like we think that someone else maybe like knows what they're doing or that someone, maybe someone's closer. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've, um, I can't think specifically, but I do feel like I've been in situations where I felt this and maybe someone spoke up or did something before I did and... um, that it gets you thinking like, well, like I should have been first. So like, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's not good to be in those situations, but maybe learning to recognize them and identifying that within yourself and then being able to take action uh, faster or at all. Yeah, absolutely. So whether that's in person um, and you're starting to see something harmful happening, you know, and you're wondering, uh, is someone going to do something? That's that moment to recognize I can do something. Right. You have that power. Yeah. Um, and, you know, seeing this on an, in an online instance, what did that looks like? Uh, in 2017, a gang rape was live broadcasted on Facebook and 40 people watched. No one called the police. You, I'm sorry. Are you talking about watched through Facebook or yeah. watched person? through Facebook's live? And another incident was reported of a live stream of a person with disabilities being beaten. And many people assumed Facebook should have been the one to catch it right. and start that response, right? Uh, and they do. They are well. They they have you know twenty four hour moderators to guard against this, and they've definitely heightened security since then. But at in these cases, it was too late, and Facebook didn't catch it. And since then, we've definitely seen more functions and features for users to report bad behavior on a much more granular level, like report this video for misinformation or for hate or other things. Um, And these were some of the cases that really triggered those responses. Yeah, there's a um, we live in a an age where people are able to broadcast themselves and it's definitely led to kind of these strange situations where people broadcast themselves committing crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes intentionally, sometimes I don't know like what they're thinking, but um, actually I know in um, Eugene, pretty close to here, uh, uh, during like um, earlier COVID lockdowns, there was a cookie store that had um, like a mask sign um, which I guess gained some popularity online and people got into kind of a or certain communities got into a habit of going to the store without masks and kind of harassing hmm. the owners. And I know there was one instance where um, people came in filming or like live streaming uh, with no masks on and the owner uh, asked them to leave and then tried to kind of force them out uh, with a bat and I don't remember exactly what happened, but they ended up with the bat and 
kind of uh, assaulted her, I think. It's been a while since I saw the video. But, yeah, like they were – I mean, they broadcast themselves doing it, kind of told on themselves because they filmed themselves uh, committing these crimes. And, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, – Horrific and yeah, stupid. really. Because you've just created evidence. But, um, you know, that – oh, yeah. People, yeah. people do really horrific things, and they feel very emboldened online uh, – to do that because, you know, there is an understanding that there is very little security and ramifications often that happen from hate crimes online. Um, and, you know, there's also kind of a loss of whose responsibility is it to do something about this? Is it the platform? Is it the police? Is it me? Right. And yeah. that diffusion of responsibility is another reason why the bystander effect happens. Uh, we assume that someone else or another person uh you know, is either going to step up and take care of it because that's their responsibility or even that that person that's the, the victim is the is deserving, um, you know, or undeserving of help. And we actually saw this happen, unfortunately, with the George Floyd case where the officers under the officer that was pinning George Floyd and ultimately led to his untimely death uh, didn't know what to do because he was a leading officer. So right. if, if your boss is doing something and even though you know it's wrong – is it your responsibility to say something? And, you know, the answer to that is, yes, it is your responsibility. But right. there's there's a concern, you know, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to be harmed uh, if, if I say something? And that really made them hesitate. Yeah, I know. Um, actually, the I guess you'd call them like the lesser officers, I, I believe have been on trial um, mm -hmm. about that case, which I think is pretty unusual from what I've heard. Yeah. Usually, well, so I don't know too much about like precedent here, but my understanding is that generally um, if you are, I I don't think accomplice is the right word, but if you're present, mm. um, then you're generally not held in as much um, like legal responsibility as like the person committing the actions. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think in this case, they are seriously considering, like, the responsibility of those officers who didn't do anything, right? Right. Or could have, like, protected um, Chauvin, I guess. Um, right. I mean, and there's there's a lot of precedents actually being broken with this case. Yeah. Um, we know that it, historically police unions and police officers have gotten massive protections, probably in many unwarranted places, and this case, you know, has really brought to light, you know, one, where where is the bystander effect in this and where is responsibility in that? Um, and I want to, you know, also make a mention, you know, without that video footage that had been taken. Right. There's a there's a good chance that we wouldn't have seen this justice happen. And so I want to make a quick caveat and say, you know, many people will often film police interaction uh even when they see something going wrong as part of their response. And that kind of comes at that point of, you know, these are armed officers. And if they think you're inter interfering, your life could very much be in danger, too. So there is benefit to recording something um, that is happening and it not necessarily being part of the I'm filming this for, you know, for weird pleasures or anything. It's more like there's, <laughs> right. there should be accountability. But, you know having people stand around a gang rape happening and filming completely different story. Yeah. Um, definitely. 
in terms of like kind of being a bystander to police interactions, I think it would absolutely benefit everyone if they more clearly understood their rights in the context of like filming police interactions and like being close to police interaction. Which is not legal in every state. Right. And I, I probably should know the Oregon uh, law is better. I really don't. I think it's it's legal here, but we're thinking, uh, and we'll come back to that. <laughs> we will find out what states it's not legal in. Um, but you know, people may people may be held back by that cost. Either I'm going to get hurt. Um, you know, the benefit to me doing something uh, isn't as good. Right. Um, and you know, people have to weigh that in their head. You know, what is the cost to this? And when we first um, you know, when one of the first things that we learn in first response is that you should not try to go and be a hero at the cost of your own life, because then that means people coming behind you have to rescue two people versus just the one person. Right, for sure. So, you know, there is a real reality that you shouldn't jeopardize your safety too much and make the situation worse by helping. Um, but also, you know, we got to recognize that when you are asking somebody for help, uh, there's a real reality that they're asking themselves is helping going to make much of a take much of my time, my money, um, and what reward will I get if I help? Yeah, one of the yeah definitely like the, a huge difference when we're thinking about like bystander effect versus if it's just you. Um, I think uh, something that bystanders might feel is like if I'm the one who acts, will I kind of end up being like the scapegoat or like a target or like the person who receives like any kind of uh like negative reaction from intervening or or whatever that action would be um where if it's by yourself um it's just you and you don't have to think about this either doing it or not doing anything um but when you're in a group you might kind of feel like well i'd love to be the second person um, but I don't want to be the first person. I think that's actually a pretty common group yeah. dynamic is. Um, the second person is the and is, ends up being the group leader. There's a video I love online where one person's just dancing in a crowd and everyone's kind of watching and looking at them. Oh, this is weird. But then one other person comes and just starts vibing and dancing and then everybody comes. Right. It's that yeah. second person that gives that social validation for you to move. Right. Um, and. It's a powerful position to be in, but it's a terrifying per- place to be in that first position because mm-hmm. everyone's watching you and people are judging. And you have to have that conviction to make a, to take action and to move and to be brave. And that's hard in a, in a hazardous scenario. You, you are really uncertain. Where, what harm am I going to take on? And right. people are always more likely to help if there's a reward that outweighs the cost. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely just like huge giant like kind of social uh like effects in play that totally are absent when like those groups are missing so Mm -hmm. i mean really um just crazy stuff and Yeah. yeah totally the the other idea um that we can often get caught behind in the bystand effect is will my efforts even make a difference and we often feel this when we hear about, uh, you know, horrific disasters happening in far off places. Yeah. Will my money actually do anything? Right. Does my post actually do anything? Uh, and there is a very genuine uncertainty that can come from just not knowing how to help. 
But there's also the ugly side of that, that it could be weaponized incompetence. Have you heard of this before? No. Tell me about it. So weaponized incompetence is something that we see on many levels of life, uh, but it's where you're capable of helping, totally capable, um, and even maybe not even helping all the way or doing a ton of things, but you could help even some, even some degree, but you intentionally choose not to help because for whatever reason, maybe you're, you know, not feeling like it, you're seeing, oh, it's not going to give me the benefit that I want. And they disingenuously place blame on the idea that they're not capable of helping and they wouldn't be enough to be able to do enough uh, to even be worth any action. And you see this on the level of like, you know, somebody that's like, you know, a partner in the home saying, oh, I, I, I never do the dishes right. So you should just do them. You know, I never fold the clothes right. So you should do it um, all the way to people, you know, saying, well, I don't even know if I would do the right thing here, so I'm not even going to try. Yeah, I have a awful tangent. Uh, last night I was watching Seinfeld, and there was a guest starring uh, Rob Schneider mm-hmm. who had a hearing aid, mm-hmm. and uh, Elaine thought that he was intentionally not hearing um, oh, no. like his boss give him work orders, and then it would all get pushed onto Elaine. Um I think it turned out that he actually just had trouble hearing. But for a second, they believed he was weaponizing his incompetence to get out of doing work. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's (laughs) there's 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 so many reasons why that can happen. Absolutely. It's a really funny example. Um, Yeah. So when you're thinking, do my efforts, will they make a difference? Um, You know, if you were the person in trouble, would any help make a difference for you? Yeah. I mean, I think. If, if you believe that the action that you would take would have, like, a positive impact and you're not maybe putting yourself at, like, extreme risk or something like that, then, yeah, like, any action is significant. And I really think that this is kind of something that probably gets uh, kind of more uh, – we see – more extreme examples of this online Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about um, kind of bystander effect just because there's a lot of uh, I mean when you're on the internet you're kind of doing it by yourself and there's a lot of times where maybe you see something and the mechanism that you would use to like alert about uh, like a a problem like would, report something yeah or... report something would be like very like it gives you very little feedback mm. back where it's like thank you for your, your report so it's you don't like really how much feel like you did anything yeah what did i actually do yeah like if i was on i don't have facebook but if i was on a facebook live mm-hmm. and i saw something i didn't like and i hit report um and it said you know thanks for submitting i would go okay well i just accomplished nothing really uh so i think when we think about um, this more in an online setting, from a design perspective, we really want to make sure that when users um, are reporting or need to report like an incident, that they feel like kind of validated in what they've done or see some kind of effect, mm. like a reinforcement of like, yeah, my action did something. and. You see this a lot of times, um, sometimes in like uh, different video games I've played, you can like report a user for 
bad behavior or something like that. And sometimes I'll get a thing that's like, hey, we did evaluate your report and we, you know, took this guy offline for four hours or something. And, and that's when I feel good because it's like, okay, I actually saw someone, you know, harassing people in chat or something like that. And my report um, was like useful. Like it helped them identify people that are not being good sports or whatever. It made a difference. Right. So that's that's a really excellent point, Josh. For tech creators out there and creating reporting structures, one, the person reporting should feel validated that, yes, you did something and we're going to look into it with priority because this could be very dangerous. Um, but then that follow-up of whether that report was made actionable or, hey, you know what, we determined that that wasn't actually an issue. Um, right. It gives that user that satisfaction of, yes, you did report and whether it was useful or not, it made, you know, you did something. That social confirmation of, yes, you did a good thing is really important to us as we either help each other or uh, make sure that we're not doing harm. So social approval is actually a big factor in how we decide, are we going to help? Did my help do enough? Right. And there's a lot of kind of complicated social factors at play when we're thinking about bystander effect and sort of crowd dynamics. And there was a 2021 research report which uh, was looking at group dynamics and found that factors like um, race or cultural background can influence how likely people are to help others in need, where if a a person being harmed looked uh, more like you and maybe people that were causing harm looked less like you, then you might be more um, inclined to help, which is um, not a good bias to have because we want to help anyone who is in need. But that's something that, you know, we should be thinking about when we're in a situation that might be uh, harmful to somebody or, or dangerous. That's right. There's n- We all want to belong. That's just a natural human uh, behavior and want and we fear disapproval by others yeah, and if sure. it seems okay with the majority it's you know surely somebody knows something that I don't know and that's why this is okay and so often we you know exactly what you're mentioning see that expressed in you know you might be more likely to help someone who looks like you rather than someone who doesn't um, and that takes some deep shadow work right we got to acknowledge you know where our own biases are Um, But then when we see someone in help, recognize that they are first a human, whether they look like you or not. And if that was you in that situation, would you want them to help? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes you just can't help freezing in an emergency. But if you can snap yourself out of it and take action, not only are you less likely to be harmed, your actions could break others out of the freeze and help others that are in danger. So say it with me now. I am allergic to the bystander effect. (laughs) I am allergic to the bystander effect, uh, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, when we, yeah, definitely, I think a a huge factor in bystander is just recognizing when it's happening. Mm. And that's what I want to do moving forward is, well, I don't go outside too much anymore uh, since COVID. But uh, when I am in situations that I get like a sense of, maybe something's wrong is just really have this like active sort of part of my brain where I'm really trying to like understand what's happening and what I'm doing instead of 
having more of a passive or like instinctive reaction, you know, be more alert uh, and act first. That's right. So if you ever find yourself thinking, well, I thought someone else was going to help, know that everybody else is thinking that too. And you could be the first. If you're wondering, is this my responsibility? We all have responsibility here. If you're wondering, does this cost too much or can I even really do anything? Know that your efforts can always make a difference, but you should never put yourself in danger uh, to try to help someone else. Your safety is also very important. Right. And if you're in a group and you know that helping is going to make you stand out, first of all, ask yourself, is that really a group that you want to be with? (laughs) But then, you know, know that people will respect you by standing up and doing the right thing. Yeah. For sure. But doing the right thing, you know, what does that even look like? Taking action. Um, and that kind of leads us into response number two, flight. And flight. Yeah, flight. This is when we run away from danger. And it's mostly for protection of self. Um, but we don't really take any action to correct the problem. And flight is actually the reaction we kind of most want people to take in emergency management, right? We just want you to get out of the danger zone uh, so that you can help yourself. Um, And flight typically is the safest response for people. Just get out of danger um, and, you know, tends to not cause harm for others. So flight often isn't the most extreme response. um, But what this looks like online is scrolling away. Yeah. Closing the web page out. Yep. Uh, maybe you're not reporting it, but you also didn't do anything or to like help the person that was in harm, but you protected yourself. Right. And I, I think in a sort of an online setting, this is still really important, especially when we think about um, maybe like kids or uh, people that want to stay sane. Like there's a lot of kind of shock content on the Internet that is... I mean, maybe old or maybe it could be live potentially, but um, there's a lot of like kind of disturbing stuff online and uh, like having a response of like, I need to get away from this is a good one for for certain. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So know when to run, but also know when to take more action. Um, You know, if you have the potential to report something and make a difference, you know, without causing harm to yourself, it's a good thing to do. And that action, you know, that's when you start getting into fight mode. When you are taking responsive action to make change or to challenge the danger coming at you, but this is where things can get really extreme again. Yeah, definitely. Um, Fight is probably one of those responses that manifests in a lot of different ways online, just because there's a lot of ways to kind of respond or be aggressive in an online setting Um, and we see this in a bunch of different forms online um, in sort of like online vigilantism or like call out or cancel culture or um, kind of online justice or frontier justice there's just so many um, forms of sort of uh, like a fight response or that, that kind of online engagement where, I mean, it's a just a huge, huge subject. Yeah. And you think about 
I'm thinking about one of the current events that we're we're dealing with right now or we're seeing right now is uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. Many Ukrainians are staying to fight. Many over two million have already left the country um, for their own safety. And those that have stayed to fight, there is a righteous justiceness in defending their country and their land and their people. Um, and that compared to, for instance, somebody deciding to take the law into their own hands and unjustice and serve, quote unquote, justice in an unjust way. And I think of in horrific case of Ahmaud Aubrey, where people wrongfully right. assumed yeah. because he's a black man running, he had robbed houses and took, quote unquote, justice in their own hands, stalked him and killed him. That's a lynching. And that that's where we see it. Awful. It's horrific. It's one of those extremes that can come from the fight response. Yeah. Um, so in online and the cyber world, um, the fight response and sort of online vigilantism is a really big idea um, and it's a really new idea generally just because, you know, um, the internet is a constantly expanding and changing place and it hasn't been around for too long in like a historical context. So we see a couple different large sort of like ideas about um, online vigilantism. And there's I, I mean, a lot, really. But th there's some kind of common ones, which one is online shaming. We can see this in sort of like cancel culture type actions or um, more uh, kind of direct or harmful ones where uh, people can like stalk or, or blackmail or threaten users online. Um, through a, a lot of different methods, just uh, harassing online or trying to expose users for um, behavior. And when we when we think about Hazadapt and the direction that Hazadapt is moving, one of the sort of long-term goals is emergency reporting. Mm -hmm. And that is when a lot of these sort of online vigilantism questions come into play in our design yep. because they present a huge, huge, huge risk to public safety, and they're really important to consider. Um, so when we think about emergency reporting, a huge question is um, how can we design it in a way so that um, we reduce or eliminate online shaming and harassment? And... Um, that's kind of a big question. Uh, or unjust calls driven by bias, like racism and prejudice. Yeah. Right. We, we still haven't figured out how to do that with a 911 system, with people calling in and, you know, us figuring out how to do that on a digital plane where it could happen en masse much easier. Very difficult. And it's one of the things we're still researching because and we don't want to just do it without knowing these answers. So it may take some time and that's OK. Yeah, definitely. Um Incident reporting is going to be a huge undertaking at Hazadapt because mm -hmm. there's just so many questions and uh, risks that we have to kind of assess and deal with. And one of the big ones is sort of like uh, anonymity versus like, what would you call it, sort of accountability in mm -hmm. terms of incident reporting. And it's a pretty delicate balance um, because uh, there's sort of two main approaches to sort of like 
uh, user reporting and anonymity are two like main ideas and we want to find a balance between them. And one of them is uh, more anonymity with reports, which sort of reduces the credibility of reports, but it also reduces the risk for users of their personal information being released if they were a person who um, could put themselves at risk by publicly reporting an incident, then we uh, could potentially uh, reduce harm for them and uh, make it able for them to report an incident more safely. Mm -hmm. um, and on kind of the other side of that coin is when we have higher anonymity in user reporting, then the amount of bad uh, reports can go up and if people want to like troll or send in um, harmful reports maybe targeting people like falsely then it, it's harder to hold them accountable so there's a there's I mean there's like a million questions here but eventually we're gonna have to do a lot of focus into the design of how much user information do we need to store how much information um, should be public facing, if any, and how much information can emergency managers see because there's a lot of sort of uh, faces of the problem here where, I mean, there's probably like a minimum amount of information that we would need to function in the system uh, that we're creating and then after that, there's a lot of like different potential use cases where different amount of information uh, really changes the you know risk. Totally, totally. So a couple examples that come to my mind when I think about that. Um, many people, many many survivors of sexual assault don't go to report it because they are nervous of the ramifications that will happen to right. them. Um, or if someone's in power and you're reporting them and they could have the potential to see that information of who reported them, you could have negative ramifications. Um, but, you know, when you call 911 right now to report uh, an incident that's happening, they do. They take your name. They want to know who's reporting this um, because there are examples and totally situations where people have done uh, the extreme opposite where they call and make an, a, you know, a false claim that someone is causing harm. And you, you actually just introduced me to this term. What was it? Swatting? Swatting. Yeah. Yeah. So this was the idea where, um, people would discover the address of someone that they wanted to target and then they would call in a false threat. I don't, I mean, it probably depended, but maybe like a bomb or a hostage situation. Yeah, something that a would, SWAT team, it's pretty serious. Yeah, something exactly that would warrant like a SWAT team response to that, the target's like home, essentially. And they, the home, home or the people inside weren't actually doing anything wrong, but then they'd have a SWAT team break into their house, really dangerous, you know, guns. Guns ablazing. Ablazing, you yeah. know, and... um I know that uh, I know that some amount of people have been like uh, convicted or sentenced, or whatever, on um, you know swatting or using those resources to crime, at yeah. attack people. And so, in those cases, when it's seriously harmful, like we would be really thankful that we have the amount of information required so that we can find the people who are abusing that resource. Um, so that they can't do that anymore. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
it's crazy stuff. Totally. You know, and on, on the 911 dispatcher side, we take every call seriously. And exactly. Yeah. Swatting isn't is kind of a newer phenomenon and because we are in a heightened state of, you know, we're seeing weirder, crazier, more dangerous stuff, you know, than our past, uh, you know, getting together and, you know, taking action is just a normal part of public safety. Um, but having a SWAT team burst into your home at any time of the day, whether that's morning, noon, or night, is traumatic. It's going to break down your door. You're, you know, it's very scary. And to have all of these guns come in pointing at you and your family completely unaware uh, is terrifying. And that can cause long-term, you know, trauma. So yeah. it's it's a very serious crime, and it is a federal crime. Like, you you will serve time for this, for, for <laughs> committing a swatting. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean... It's traumatizing, but I mean, there's, I mean, there's serious, serious risk of someone being hurt or yeah. killed, like legitimately, because when SWAT's busting into a, a residency that they believe has someone with a weapon mm-hmm. or someone with a really dangerous device or dangerous person, like they could, like every corner that they turn for them mm-hmm. is the potential for like serious danger. So it's going to be like hair trigger and... You know, so I mean, I, I'm not sure if anyone's been seriously hurt um, from a swatting event, but it's like really, really dangerous. Well, I mean, we see we see you know people being killed from no knock warrants, where yeah, you know, right. police bust in, people are asleep, and they thought their house is being broken into, and then because they went to protect themselves, they then are either shot or their family is shot. Because, right. you know, that, that hair, what did you call it, a hairline or hair trigger? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's very real. Um, so that release of basically sounding an alarm and sending someone else um, is one thing. But you can also cause a lot of harm by releasing somebody's personal information online. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, doxing is like a um, really common and like fairly rampant form of harassment online. Um, it doesn't always lead to doxing, which is probably like a, or sorry, it doesn't always lead to swatting, which is a pretty extreme case of like abuse of like releasing someone's public information. Mm -hmm. But still, like if you're a, like a large figure, maybe someone in power or maybe someone who is just like famous or uh, has people that don't like them, then if you like all of a sudden your public information gets released, maybe your home address, maybe the addresses of people in your family your kids or schools. where you work, all of a sudden you could be being harassed in real life by strangers um, because of your presence online, which is really scary. So, yeah, it's pretty tough to stay completely anonymous online in general, but we definitely still have a huge responsibility to be really considerate about how we use um, user information, what we collect, and then also how much, if any of it, is publicly available. Right. Right. And, you know, doxing is, from what I understand, it's much more of a less of triggering public safety, but more like telling people this is where you can do something harmful to somebody that quote unquote, deserves harm. Right. Um, So you may hear of uh, celebrities or activists or um, people that are in the public eye 
getting their addresses released and people showing up to their homes with guns and like these they, they, their kids are there and these are not even public safety officers that have any you know like code of contact these are just people taking the extreme quote unquote justice or what they think is justice into their own hands and that's that's horrifying and that could honestly deter people from even wanting to go into activism right. or you know standing out because people are vicious especially when they feel like you know you, you don't agree with them yeah for sure i mean it's definitely something that occurs in sort of like political spaces online where i guess what you'd call them like political opposites or maybe like extremist or or uh, more extreme groups will target um other groups with like doxes, try and find out where people live um, because they are like ideologically opposed to each other. And it gets pretty, um, I mean, uh, I mean, doxes don't always result in harm, but there's just this threat that just exists by having your information released online, especially if there's a group of people that very strongly dislike you or want to do you harm. Um, yeah, I mean... I mean, doxing can be from mildly annoying where, you know, people order subscriptions to your house <laughs> that are uh, unattractive or send you flaming bags of poop, right. you know, um, all the way to bringing guns to your home. You know, it's there's a lot of ways that doxing can harm someone, but it's it's different from hacking or like stealing someone's social identity or social security number, which right. is much more like I am pulling resources from you or causing harm and stealing your identity. This is displaying identity and calling the masses to create harm. Exactly. It, it's definitely more of like a social interaction online because there's not that much you can do from a design perspective to prevent users from releasing their own information either on purpose or by mistake because a lot of people um, don't understand the gravity of like using the internet and how that can be like seriously... Uh, dangerous depending on what kind of information you make public um so it's definitely it's more of a um social uh effect that happens online where um people you know accounts are connected people can dig through old facebook's find an email associated with different accounts and really start to dig through and and find personal information on you and that's um that's when it can get kind of dicey and you hit, yeah, so many good points right there. And I think when we think about people not really having a full grasp of what could happen if I put this information online, you know, uh, I bought a new home and you take a picture of yourself in front of the new home. You know, you can Google reverse image search and find out where people live, even if you don't have the address or accidentally putting your license plate, you know, image online. There was a really crazy example of this Um a while back, I think it was a K-pop artist or some kind of um, like uh, celebrity figure in, uh, I think, Korea, where she took a picture of herself and uh, some user or maybe group of users went through the reflection in her eye oh my God. and figured out where she lived um, and then harassed her in real life. Where it's oh, like sucks. you can do things that you really truly believe are like not um, not putting yourself at risk and you do. Mm. I remember oh, – I can't remember who this was. For some reason I feel like it was Shia LaBeouf was posting pictures 
of like a flag or something or leaving a flag up in different locations. He, he would post a picture of it. I'm, I don't know why I think it was him. It might be have nothing to do with him. But there was a flag that would go up in different spots and you get like one photo and peop, there's a group of people on the internet that would just cyber sleuth mm-hmm. and try and find where in the world it was. Um, like the ability of large groups of people online to, um, well, I guess solve problems is really incredible. Like uh, there's there's a lot of really cool positive examples or not harmful examples of people uh, solving big uh, sort of like puzzles or problems online, but yeah. that same energy can be harnessed more maliciously um, to uh, harass people. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think about the people who are like, I have a long lost sister that, you know, we got separated in the war, you know, and like finding and reuniting. Oh, that's one of the amazing stories of the Internet. Right. Um, But, you know, you you said a really core truth about the Internet that I wish we could just have on repeat. There is a real reality that if someone has malicious intent, it is almost impossible to stop them. Yeah, no, um... And when a lot of for people sure. have malicious intent, it can get scary. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. Um, which is a great combo with the internet because there are so many angry people, mm-hmm. and it's um, it can be easier. It's not always easy, but it can be easier to um, hide your identity on the internet. At least if you are kind of more like versed in in computers and stuff, uh, where you know, you can sort of end up with a group of people attacking you and they know everything about you and you can't find out anything about them. And so there, uh, people can sort of create a uh, a bit of anonymity for themselves and then use that to uh, harass other people. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that people create some kind of accountability or justice online often is uh, like coming together and calling someone out for behavior. Maybe they're, you know, you'll have many people come in and uh, say something is wrong. For instance, I think of uh, this uh, TikToker named Drew DeFollow, I think is her name. And she, you know, calls out misogynistic behavior on TikTok and people will flood that, you know, the harmful person's page and call them out. And there's this kind of really gray area of what is good crowd accountability where we see like like that calling out bad behavior all the way to shaming and bullying yeah um yeah it's crazy online just because people can be so loud Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of times where you can see like fairly positive examples of like i guess like call out slash cancel culture where like maybe someone in a position of power like ended up accountable for something that maybe they wouldn't have uh, if they they weren't in like a big spotlight online, Um, which can be great. And then there's sort of like a worse part of that where uh, that same energy can be misdirected or maybe like uh, there could be a mistake in events and then someone gets harassed and it turns out, oh, like, sorry, like we weren't supposed to do that. don't know too much about it, but I know um, Johnny Depp was accused of harassing, I think it was either his like girlfriend or spouse, mm-hmm. or like abusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got like big 
uh, flame online and a lot of problems and stuff. And I believe it sort of ended up being the reverse of that, where he was being abused in the relationship. And then he's sort of in the hole because uh, he got a bunch of harassment online. And I don't know if it affected his work professionally, but um, I think it did. It's hard to it's hard to undo. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it can take years to create a good reputation and only a second to ruin it. And not even a worthy second, it can just be someone's bad opinion. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the internet is a really volatile space. And that kind of leads us to the question, is it ever not going to be a volatile place? Will it ever have (laughs) the right, you know, justice mechanisms? Uh, (laughs) I want to say yes in, like, a positive light. Um. But I don't know, like the, I mean, as it stands now, the internet is a mostly unregulated space Mm -hmm. in terms of like what you can do and say, um, which can be really great. And it's awesome that we have that for so many reasons. It's, uh, it's difficult to think of a way to really change sort of like the mob mentality behavior online without really restructuring the internet. And I, I think if we had an internet with less of that, it, we wouldn't recognize it now. Like we wouldn't recognize it as the internet that we have today. Um, so, I mean, there would be potential that that could be really helpful, but you know, you lose things when you change things. So it's a, a matter of how much harm can we mitigate versus the really great experiences and benefits that we have from a a more free online space. Mm. Yeah, it's it's still the Wild West. And I know that, you know, there's some romanticism that happens when you think about like, you know, the Wild West, what it was. Um, it, It was a horrific place to and time to be because you know, you may have a sheriff in town, but you also got a lot of people with guns saying, yeah, not on my watch. Um, and that's still kind of where we're at today online. Oh yeah. I mean, um, definitely when we, when we compare the internet now to the internet 10 or 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. it's gotten a lot better. Way better. Um, both in terms of like legitimate, um, legislation and also, um, like etiquette, just like people behaving or like a little bit of people just be behaving better online and also people who design online spaces being more aware and learning more about how these sort of spaces work and the dynamics and trying to reduce sort of harm and ha- harassment. Um, so I think there's a good trend and I would love if in another 10 to 15 years, we look back on now and say like, man, it's really gotten a lot better. Thank goodness. Like, we have all these great changes. Um, and, and that's kind of following most evolution, right? You know, the more sophisticated something becomes, we kind of all kind of grow into that sophistication. And, you know, unfortunately, because of how the Internet started with no sophisticated security response, uh, crime and harm has gotten a head start of being sophisticated online. And yeah, no, justice sure. and accountability is still trying to catch up. And you know, people are ingenious and especially, you know, on on both sides of that spectrum where they're wanting to do good, but also wanting to do harm and justice and uh, security and 
safety is really something that's still trying to catch up. And as soon as we even get close, you know, crime often becomes way more sophisticated. People find loopholes and they work around it. So this is to say that I have hope that we're going to continue to make it a safer place. But until then, it's your responsibility to keep yourself safe online and to try to be part of bringing safety to the internet. Yeah, no, that is a really good point, especially with like personal responsibility where the internet is really huge and there's a limit on what um, sort of like software engineers and cybersecurity specialists can do to reduce harm because there's an enormous personal and social element to it that's it's like the human element so um as time progresses and the internet becomes more common and more accessible to people uh, people will learn over time to be better users of the internet and there's a lot of like people that really advocate for like safe internet usage and safe computer usage and that's something that will just develop over time but yeah i mean that's the the big like problem both in terms of like sort of uh social safety and like harassment as well as legitimate cybersecurity um is just that human element because the internet is a very non-intuitive space and it's very new especially for people that didn't grow up with technology. Like I grew up where I was introduced to technology fairly early, not like I didn't grow up with it my whole life. A lot of kids do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that, I hope that makes them better um, users. I don't know if it does, but we'll see. Definitely more skilled, but I don't know about safer. Totally. And the internet, like you mentioned earlier, that was 10 years ago, is it's gotten better, but there's also way more users and yeah, um, sure. way more potential ways to use the internet. So no matter where you are, in the real world or online, you're probably going to encounter hazards. And as you are in those few precious seconds of figuring out how you're going to respond, whether you end up freezing, you end up fleeing, or you end up fighting, our hope is that you choose what's going to be safest for you and those around you and be aware no matter where you go you're going to be facing those hazards that's right <laughs>